You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. is there to say you are our hope you are our righteousness you are our one defense you are the ground under our feet God apart from you we are lost we are weak and broken God we need you would you come this morning would you speak to us by your word God, I pray as I speak that you would open my mouth to speak your truth as we look into your word, God, that that it would be your word that is proclaimed, not mine. God, that your spirit would be among us, shaping, forming our hearts, conforming us to the image of Christ. That is what we long for this morning, what we desire. We pray these things in Jesus' name. You can turn your Bibles to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and uh, verse 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, you forgot it, whatever, grab one. There's one in the pew there uh, near you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible at home or one you can read easily, take this one. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to, to have that. Um, if you're using one of these brown pew Bibles, as I am again this morning, um, it's page 968, and uh, so you can find 2 Corinthians chapter 9 there. Um, down the street from our house lives an elderly gentleman by the name of Henry. And uh, Henry and I met one day, as neighbors do, standing around the mailbox and got to chatting first about, I don't know, weather or something benign, and then about more significant things, life and family and what's important in this world. And, and uh, after a few conversations, Henry, uh, from his little blue mobility scooter, um, began to tell these stories from his life. And Henry is quite the storyteller. And in fact, he has a little self-published book of stories, um, some of them from his father and grandfather, many from his own life. And, and uh, one day he came by our house and dropped off this book and the kids have been reading through it together. Um, one of the stories in there that, that I think is super uh, interesting and relevant for us as we think about 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning, um, he wrote um, about the years following the Second Great War, the Second World War. And uh, he is of German descent and was living in Germany at the time. Uh, inflation is running rampant and food was not only scarce and limited, but you, you couldn't just buy food with money. Um, you were given a, a coupon, a voucher from the government that you could use to then go to the store and claim your designated allotment of food. And, uh, of course, as that happens, then the, the black market begins to grow. And so farmers and different racketeers uh, would be out selling food kind of under the table, as it were, at, at 20, even 50 times the, the going cost. And uh, this went on for some time. And these, these black market dealers 
made it incredibly wealthy. They did well, um, raking in millions of Reichmarks and, and, and preying on the hunger of the people. What they failed to anticipate was that in 1948, the the German economy still threatening collapse, um, the U.S. government stepped in with with a rescue plan. And and the the problem with the economy at the time was that the the government had, had just arbitrarily printed off so much money trying to pay for the war um, that the the market is flooded with bills, and, and so money begins to rapidly lose its value. And the solution that they came to was to found a new bank and to introduce the Deutschmark as a new currency. And so to institute this new currency, what happened was every family um, was given 40 Deutschmarks per person. Today's economy, that would be about 120 uh, Canadian dollars, so... All of the sudden, overnight, the Reichmark is out, it means nothing, and the Deutschmark is in. Imagine your family all of a sudden, okay, fresh start, $120 per person, go. Now, for a lot of people, this was welcome. This was hope. Uh, the economy started to move and build and grow again and rebuild itself but for those who had invested in this black market racketeering, those who had, who had destroyed their relationships, taking advantage of their neighbors and squeezing out every last dollar, every last Reichmark and piling up millions of dollars, all of a sudden found that what they had given their lives to, what they had been storing up and putting all of their hope in was worthless overnight, obsolete. Some of these racketeers, as Henry tells, in his town even committed suicide. I mean, it just their life obliterated. Everything they had hoped in, they thought they were doing great, and then it's gone. It begs the question, what are you invested in? What are you treasuring up and, and storing up? What is your hope in, and, and, and will it last? Will it hold its value over the test of time? Now, some of you are like, is is he about to launch into a Bitcoin campaign? Is he talking about NFTs or real estate or hockey cards or rare colored gems? What are we going to? No. No, if you want stability, we're going to have to think bigger than that. Uh, We need to do more than get outside of the Canadian economy or outside of the the North American banking system. Uh, We need to get outside of this world. The reality of that brings us this morning to um, this next sermon in the series on the church. Why do we do what we do? We've talked about baptism. Why, why are we dunking these people underwater? What's that about? We talked about the Lord's Supper. What's with the little snack that we get after church? The little crumb of bread and juice. What's that about? Why do we do prayer? Why do we do discipleship? This morning, um, I want to ask, why do we do giving? What's with that? Why do we pass the little bag around? Why do people put money in it? What is going on here? Well, Paul answers that question in a beautiful way in in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 15. No doubt this is a passage that you're familiar with. It is often uh, read and referred to. And so I want us to take some time to just dive in a little deeper. 
Let's really get a handle on what this is about. So let me read this passage for you. Paul writes, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting verse 6, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So we talk about this practice of giving money, taking the offering on Sunday morning. This, uh, this passage gives us a, 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 a great outline for what that ought to be, what ought to be happening in our hearts as we come to uh, the practice of giving. And the first thing I think we see in this passage, looking at, at verses 6 and 7, um, is that our giving ought to be for joy. We give for joy. Now, Paul is is already in the context of financial generosity as he comes to verse 6. This isn't out of the blue. Um, just a, a throwback, if you remember the sermon on prayer. We, we looked at Romans 15.31. Paul is calling the church in Rome, would you pray for me as I'm gathering this gift that I'm going to be taking to the church uh, in Jerusalem? He was, he was gathering the, the donations of the saints throughout uh, the Greek world to take back to the Jerusalem church that was in the midst of a famine. And, and in, in Romans, he's asking them, pray. Pray that that gift would be acceptable and, and received well. Um, over here in 2 Corinthians, this is the same initiative. It's the same um, giving project that he's a part of. And he spent verses 1 to 5 telling the Corinthian church, um, basically, I've already bragged about your generosity. They had, they had promised to give great things to support the church in Jerusalem. And so he's been going around saying to the other churches, hey, look at what Corinth is doing. Be generous like Corinth. Let's give like Corinth. And, and now he's saying, okay, Corinth. I'm coming. I'm coming to collect. I've already bragged about how generous you were. Don't let me down, right? Like, this is going to be embarrassing if I show up and it falls flat. Um, come and give. Come and put your words into action. Do what you've promised. And so verses 6 to 15, then, is Paul encouraging them to give. He's trying to build their motivation. He's trying to ignite this fire in them for generosity. And he starts in verse 6 with this agricultural principle. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now that makes sense in an agricultural 
setting and a, a framework of farming. Uh, if you put more seed out, um, I, I'm no farmer, but I think more crops grow, right? There's a, a one-to-one relationship there. If you're skimpy on your seed, you're going to get skimpy growth and a skimpy harvest. If you're liberal with your seed, you're going to get a, a liberal harvest. And that makes sense in the sowing and reaping physically, but we just don't think about money that way. Like that's not how we think about dollar bills. How do you get more money? What do you tell your kids? Like, oh, you want to buy that thing? You want to have more money? You better get rid of the stuff you have. Uh, nope, save it, right? You got to learn to save. You got to be disciplined. You got to keep it. You got to collect it, keep it together. And, and so we get this hoarding mentality. If I want to have more money, I need to keep more money. And, and Paul is saying, give it away. There's a, there's a sowing and reaping principle here. If you want more, if you want more, now we'll dig into this a little bit deeper. Is it more money that we're after? He doesn't really describe what the harvest is, but he says, if you want more blessing, if you want to receive bountifully from the Lord, sow that money, use it, give it away. He's asking them to take a radically new perspective on money. If you want to use your money well, don't save it, don't hoard it up. Think of it like seed. When the farmer sows his seed, there's a, there's a risk involved. He, he throws that out onto the ground. That that seed is worth good money. That's valuable to him. And he chucks it out on the ground, leaves it there. Great risk. Um, Hoping, hoping there'll be a a harvest, a a response. He he loses control over that seed. He he risks it to be lost to to weather or disease or insects. and, And he trusts God that in the next season, in the season of harvest, that that seed will have grown and produced fruit and and that there will be a crop of reward at the end that is greater than the seed that he threw out, hopefully many times greater. If you want to make the most of your money, you, you need to let it go, trusting that there will be fruit, that there'll be a, a reward in the proper season. And so Paul builds off of this principle of sowing and reaping, looking forward to a reward and and and, and with that um, this statement of verse 7 that many of us know so well follows. And so each one of us must give as he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now let's just make some practical observations here about giving. First, the, the implied command that everyone should give. Right? This is something that, that every Christian should be a part of. This is not an optional extra. This is not um, you know, just for kind of a select few. Um, each one must give. Secondly, notice um, this particular giving that he's talking about here, this is not spontaneous. This is not off the cuff. This is not a decision made in the moment. There's past tense language here. Each one must give what he has already decided in his heart to give before the moment of giving had come. He's talking about a premeditated, planned, intentional giving. Come Sunday morning thinking, oh, we're going to give today? How much should I give? Um, That's not ideal. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, no, plan in your heart. Think about it. Do it intentionally, carefully. Um, Decide in your heart so that when you come to that moment of giving, you're ready. Thirdly, notice 
This is not tithing. Uh, I don't know if you've caught that, but uh, I don't use the word tithing as we take our offering, and I've, I've nudged others. Let's, let's drop that language of tithing. Um, now, you may disagree with me on this, and that's okay. This is not an issue we need to divide over. Christians quibble over this. Um, but let me lay this out for your consideration, that, that Christians under the new covenant don't tithe. The word tithe uh, is simply a mathematical term. It means a tenth, 10%. And it's the practice of giving 10% of your income as an act of worship to the Lord. And that's what Israel was commanded to do. Now, it shows up first, I think, with Abraham, Genesis 1420. It's this one-time gift that Abraham gave a tenth of all that he had, not his income for the month, all that he had to Melchizedek, who was a priest to the Lord. Shows up again then in Genesis 2820 as, again, one-time gift from Jacob to the Lord as this kind of thank you for protection, for saving me. But both of those are descriptive, not prescriptive. This is just what they did. Uh, And both of them being uh, one-time events, they're not commanded of us. Where it is commanded um, is in the covenant that God gave to Israel through Moses. It was part of this whole system that God had put in place of the, the feasts and the sacrifices of animals and the burnt offerings and the priests. But the covenant of Moses doesn't apply to us anymore. That's why we call it the, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. With the coming of Christ, we are under the New Covenant. We eat pork, praise the Lord. We wear clothes of mixed fabric, at least I tend to, I think, I don't know. Um, we, uh, we do all kinds of things that are not allowed under that Old Covenant. And we don't do a lot of things that we should. We do not sacrifice lambs anymore. We don't even have an altar. We, we, uh, we don't celebrate the Passover. The old covenant is obsolete, all of it. It's fulfilled in Christ. Now, there's some things that are, that are carryover. There's some things that, that are consistent between the old and new covenant, but those are made amply clear in the new covenant. And so... The old covenant was pointing forward to preparing the way for Christ who would come as the true temple and the ultimate sacrifice. Um, These things all point forward to him and now they're obsolete. They no longer apply to us. We don't obey them. And so that's the answer, by the way, as the, uh, the, the, the secularist comes to you and says, well, why don't you stone gays? Isn't that what you're supposed to do? No, that's old covenant. Why don't you stone that lady who has committed adultery? Because that's not the law we're under. That's gone. That's past. We're under the new covenant. It's different. And I think that's true of the tithe. As much as it's true of the the sacrifices in the temple, I think it's true of this practice of tithing. Um, That's why Paul says here, each one of you should give, and he doesn't finish that sentence by saying 10%. In fact, he says something radically different. This would have been the ideal place for him to reaffirm tithing and clarify that. This would have just, there it would have been. But instead, he says the opposite. He says you should give whatever you've decided in your heart to give. Now, the law over you, that command given, is to give whatever you've decided in your heart. 
that amount, the number value, that's, that's up to you. And then he goes on to stress, not under compulsion. That's, we are not to give a compulsory amount in a compulsory way. It's not demanded of us to give a certain amount. There is no law that governs how you give. So the, the Jews were commanded to give a tithe because it was a symbol that God, all we have belongs to you. We're commanded not to give a tithe, but to give generously, understanding that all we are belongs to him. Plenty of Christians decide in their heart to give 10% of their income. Praise the Lord. That's great. That's a number, and you're free to choose that number. Um, You're welcome to do that. I'm not saying you shouldn't or can't. Um, What I'm saying is there's not a law over us that demands it. And actually looking at Abraham and Jacob and the Old Covenant, um, it's okay to say, that seems like a decent place to start. I see there's some precedent there, sure. Um, Now, if you want to get technical and look carefully at the tithe and the things they were um, required to give under the Old Covenant, um, I would just nudge you toward more like 26 to 30% is what that kind of comes out to. Um, But but that was like their whole tax system uh, as part of being an Israelite. But that's not the point. The thing is, We love a law. We love a nice, clear rule. Just tell me what to do and I can do it. And then I can give my 10% exactly and pat myself on the back and say, check mark, I completed it. You're welcome. But nowhere in the New Testament are we commanded to tithe. We're commanded to be generous. So you thought, I'm off the hook. I could only give 5%. I think you might be misreading that. We're not commanded to give 10%. We're commanded to generosity. And that command has freedom to it. There's not a, there's not a law over us. There's freedom for you to decide, but, but there's a responsibility in that. Giving involves much more than just your math and your action of obedience. It involves careful thought and introspection and a generous heart. Instead of asking, how much is 10%, I find myself having to ask, how much can I actually give before I start to even feel it? Before it starts to become a a sacrifice, an inconvenience on my way of life? Do Do I give to the point where I actually find myself saying, oh, we can't do that. We gave that money away. I would love to go out to eat again tonight, um, but we've given that money away. We were generous with that. I think generosity has that implication that there's a cost to it. And I think most, if not every one of us, are in a place where we could actually give away a fair bit before it started to hurt. There's a responsibility there. It comes back to this main point in the first verse. God cares about your heart, right? It's not about the number. It's about your heart. It's not just about how much you give. It's about the motivation in your giving, and it's about the attitude in your giving. The giving that the Lord delights in is giving for joy. We're to do it cheerfully. That's a tough command. Ever stop and think about that? Like God commands things that, that I can't just do, right? Like be happy. Well, that's a nice command. Um, okay, heart, be happy didn't work. Now what? Um, We're commanded to give cheerfully, joyfully. Well, that's why this verse doesn't end there. He continues to build on this theme, trusting 
that there will be a generous reward. That there's a, a sowing and reaping principle at work here. So verse 7 says this giving is first to be from the heart. It's to flow out from a, a willing heart. And then he gives these two negative statements to help us understand what that means. From the heart means it's not reluctant. Reluctant means from grief, quite literally in the Greek, giving from grief. I don't know about you, that just makes sense to me. I get it. There are things that happen, there are things that we do in our lives that I don't want to do that. That is not from the heart. I'm not excited to do that, but I see its necessity. I see that it's a thing that it, that it needs to be done. And so I'll do it, but it's from grief. I don't want to do it. My heart's not in it. That should not be the case as we give. Secondly, he says, not from compulsion. Again, this idea there's no, there's no compulsion. There's no outside force that's, that's pressing us. It's not driven out of a threat of harm or, uh, or, or duty to I have to do what's right. Our giving is not to be begrudging or duty driven, but, but heart driven, overflowing out of joy into generosity. And we get there understanding partly this principle that the Lord will, will reward generously those who are generous. When you give, when you, you put your money in the offering plate, when, is it just a habit? Just a tradition? It's just something I, I do because I've always done it? Maybe you don't do it because you've never done it. Maybe even worse, it's painful. Oh, I have to do this again. We would have liked to go out for dinner, but we have to give. That's the right thing to do. We're cajoled into it by a sense of duty. Well, we'll get more into this sowing and reaping principle, but this is a crucial question to ask as kind of a, a barometer, kind of a, a check engine light. When I give, do I give for joy? Verses 8 to 10 then, we see that we're to give from faith. So we're giving for joy, and, and that can happen. That's possible, uh, understanding the sowing and reaping uh, principle and giving from faith. Let me read verses 8 to 10 again for us. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Notice the progression here. God's grace will give you sufficiency, enough, just what you need, so that you may abound and we'll see people run with this. Does this mean I'm going to abound in wealth? No, look at the words. You will abound in every good work. It's not promising that God will make you rich in money, but that God will make you rich in good deeds. Now, there's a principle here that I want to grab onto as well. The, the principle of proportion plays itself out here. Um, there's a, a connection between uh, what you are given and what you give. There's sufficiency that supplies the abundance. And God is able to make the seed abound generously so that you may give generously. Um, we see this also over in, in the letter to the first, to, uh, the first letter to the Corinthians, 
um, chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Paul wrote to them, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are, uh, you are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collection when I come. So, boy, notice um, they have a practice much like we do. Sunday morning, first day of the week, as they're together, they're putting something aside, storing it up, not only in Corinth, but all the churches in Galatia. And the phrase I want to look at specifically here, though, is that, that each one was to set something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Their giving was in proportion to their prospering. Just like having sufficiency, you may abound in good works. To some, God entrusts great wealth, and from them he expects great giving. To others, he gives little means, and from them he expects less, at least in a numerical value. But the heart, the heart is what matters. The heart doesn't change. We give in proportion to to what we have. And one may have a a million dollars and the other may give a hundred and another give ten. But both giving proportionately to what God has given them and doing so joyfully, the final number really is not the point. You know the story I'm thinking of already, Luke 21. Right? Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw the poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. How'd that happen? Well, because God doesn't really care about the size of the gift. Um, We just admit, God doesn't need your money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If he was hungry, he wouldn't ask you for a meal. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your money. He's talking about the heart. And whatever our circumstances in wealth or in poverty, um, the generosity uh, is the product of our faith. We come trusting. Notice there's a statement here uh, of God's sovereignty. The word all is used five times in verse 8. First, God is able. He is powerful enough. He is strong enough to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. How, how vast, how um, complete is God's care and God's provision and God's protection? It covers all things at all times, in all circumstances. That's what stands behind our giving. A God who is absolutely sovereign, Over every circumstance, a God who says, Isaiah 49, I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, and and my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish all my purposes. He's not surprised or sidetracked by any of it. That God, that powerful, sovereign God will provide sufficiently. He will give us enough. He promises, guarantees. Enough for what? Enough that I'd be rich? Enough that I'd be well-fed and and well-clothed? Enough that I'd feel comfortable? None of those things are promised. He promises to give enough that we would abound in good deeds. The widow at the temple had no money at all. She was destitute. 
She gave her last two pennies. And she was abounding in good deeds. God had provided her with enough. Those two copper coins to give away is exactly what she needed in that time, at that place, to to do that good work, to glorify God. We get so focused on wealth. We look at our definition of God's blessing and what it means to have enough. and, And then we want to bend God's words to fit our definition, and it doesn't fit. Remember, Jesus also taught Luke 12, 15. He said to them, take care. Be on your guard against covetousness. Be careful of loving the things of this world, getting too wrapped up in in desiring to have more in this world. Listen to why one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. I want to have a full life. That's that's the, the heart of it. And we think a full life means I want to have more stuff and more money and more vacations and more comfort. And Jesus says, that's not a full life. I'll give you a full life. You just have to define it rightly. God will bless you. God will give you everything you need. God will give you every good thing. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Philippians 4, 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That's not material blessings. His glory in Christ Jesus is much more valuable than than a million dollars in the bank. We so quickly think material blessings. God will put food in my belly. God will put a shirt on my back. God will put cash in my bank account, a, a car in my driveway. God will give me everything I need. If I trust him, God will make me rich. And the situation we look at is just not the case. God's definition of rich is different, and we forget. Our life doesn't consist in the abundance of our possessions. That God, that's not God's primary concern. It's not the abundance that he wants to see in our lives. God doesn't provide for us so that we will be wealthy. What does it say? He provides enough for us that we might abound in good works. He gives us generously that we might give generously. Verse 9, then, uh, is a quote from Psalm 112. And and I wonder, looking at this, if you, like me, uh, have been lazy in reading the Bible and reading this absolutely wrong. It's easy to do, I confess. I was surprised as I began to read a little more carefully, went, oh, I've skipped over this. I've not read this carefully. Without thinking carefully, um, it's easy to, to read this passage show you what I'm looking at. We're all on the same page. He distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And we think that's God who gives to the poor, who distributes freely, whose righteousness endures forever. That's not the context here. And that's not the context from Psalm 112. And that's very clear. Psalm 112 begins saying, blessed is the man who fears the Lord who greatly delights in his commandments. And it goes on to describe that man and the things that he does. And one of the things that he does uh, is this verse that he gives freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. We see that here as well in, uh, in 2 Corinthians 9. 
says that God will supply for you everything you need, for every good work, everything you need to, to give and be, and be generous. And then that word as at the start of verse 9, it's linking these two together. You'll be given enough to give away just like in the same way, um, not how God provides for us, but we will be like that man from Psalm 112. By faith in the sufficiency of God's provision and, and walking in obedience of every good work will be like that man who, who fears the Lord, who will generously distribute gifts, who will give to the poor. And then this seems really odd. This is the one that makes us uncomfortable, uh, that, that your righteousness will endure forever. We, we use that about God a lot. Um, about us? What's he talking about? Can he say that? Is that right? Well, what he means is your righteousness, your right deeds, your good actions, your generosity will have an eternal impact. It will affect eternity. This comes back to that sowing and, and reaping principle. If you sow generously, trusting in the Lord's provision, giving freely in proportion to what he has freely given you, then you'll reap a harvest. And that harvest, that, that reward will be an eternal reward. It's not a temporary reward. It is a reward that endures. Matthew 10, 42, Jesus said, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he's a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. His reward will endure forever. The, the effect, the 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 recompense of his righteousness will have an eternal fallout. If you're generous for the sake of Christ, your righteous acts, your good deeds will be rewarded. That harvest is not a temporal, worldly harvest. It is an eternal harvest. It is eternal rewards that will not be lost. Verse 10 then says the same thing again. He who supplies the seed for the sower, the bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increasing the harvest of your righteousness. So God's going to give you enough that you can be generous and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God will provide. He will give you everything you need to, to live a righteous life, to honor him. Do you believe that? Do we live that out day to day? How many times have you held back from generosity out of fear and doubt, out of uncertainty in the Lord's provision, clinging to money instead of trusting in the Lord? How foolish is that when it comes right down to it? But we've all been there. God calls us to give generously. And no matter what the circumstances, no matter what you're afraid of, what you're worried about, God is able to provide, to care for you, to give you what you need to obey him. The Lord will provide. Not a sparrow falls to the ground without his watchful eye. The, the lilies of the field are clothed in glorious array by his care. How much more will he care for you? How much more will he provide for you every good thing as you walk in generous obedience? Now, Again, does this mean I'm going to be rich? No. Does this mean I'm going to have everything I want? No. Does this mean I'm going to have everything that I think right now that I need? No. 
but that God in his wisdom will provide for you the sufficient amount to abound in every good work, everything you need to live a righteous life. And, and again, maybe that's a $100,000 to donate to, to church planting in Africa. Awesome. Maybe that's two pieces of bread so you can give one to the other guy in the cell with you. God will provide. Personally, I found some of the leanest financial times in our lives when, is, is when giving becomes the most important. With four young kids, I'm working a labor job trying to feed a family and also pay for a seminary degree, which was not cheap, and flying back and forth to the States. Um, my heart regularly needed the practice of giving. To be reminded again, to, to, to do something of tangible faith, to say, Lord, I trust you. Provision of my family is not in my hands. I can't do it. All that I have is yours. You give, you take away, you'll give enough. My hope is in you to provide what we need. And never once did we cease to give and never once were we um, without the things that we truly needed. But it's also in the seasons of plenty. My heart needs that practice of, of regular giving as an act of faith, to, to remember, to remind my heart that this is God's blessing. This is not what I deserve. I didn't, I didn't rightly earn this, not with anything that wasn't given to me before that. That everything I have belongs to him. To be held with an, an open hand and used for, for his kingdom. And, and, and that my life and my joy do not consist in, in the abundance of my possessions. God, this isn't where my hope is. God's plan for different people at different times is different. But his command is the same. This joyful generosity that, that flows out from a faith in him, trusting in him. We give for joy. We give from faith. And then we give to the glory of God. Verses 11 to 15, just bring this home. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us, through Paul delivering this gift, will, will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution to them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So follow Paul's logic here. He reiterates what he's already said. You'll be enriched in every way so you can be generous in every way. God will give you what you need to continue in generosity, which then through us, through Paul, delivering this gift would produce thanksgiving to God. So our, our generosity, our giving out of joy and from faith produces thanksgiving to God. So there's this double purpose happening, right? And Paul makes that explicit, verse 12. The ministry of this service, the, the, the outflow of this act of, of giving is not only to supply the needs of the saints. There is a practical purpose. They're hungry and need food and need cared for. But also 
Purpose two is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. There's a spiritual purpose here. There's an ultimate goal behind the physical goal, inspiring thanksgiving, producing worship in the hearts of those saints. Now, we need to ask the question. It's not very spiritual, but we got to ask it. Why? Why are they thanking God? Like, I gave it. It was mine. I'm the one who gave it to you. I know the the right spiritual answer is thank God for that, but I did it. Thank me. Why are you thanking God? Verse 13 explains why this thanksgiving is to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God. Here's why. Because of your submission that comes from the confession of the gospel of Christ. Paul understands. The saints in Jerusalem understand that truly cheerful giving, giving for joy and from faith only happens as an outflow of a confession and understanding a holding on to the gospel of Christ. This really is the necessary logic of giving for joy. If this is my work, if this is some sacrifice that that I have made, and we easily begin to think this way, and in the end, I come out at a net loss because I gave to you, then you ought to thank me. I did that. I sacrificed for you. It was me. And, And actually, if this is the dynamic that's at work, if that's actually how this plays out, then what do I get to say to God? You're welcome. I did that. I have put God in my debt as I have given, as I have sacrificed, and God owes me now. Thank you very much. The sowing and reaping principle blows that out of the water. It destroys that. It empowers us to give for joy to the glory of God because it promises this will not be a net loss. You're not going to come out on the, on the giving end of this deal. This will not be a sacrifice in, the, in, in any real understanding of that word. But as I give generously for joy and from faith, not only is the Lord going to provide the things that I'm giving, but he will also reward that generous giving that he provided for to the point that there will be a harvest and eternal reward that far outweighs the gift that I gave. And in that scenario, what grounds do I have to say, you're welcome, God? What debt would God owe to me? He supplied every good thing. And I gave some of that away only to be blessed all the more in return. He's the supplier. He's the motivator. He's the giver behind all of it. It's the Lord. He gets the glory, not me. He gets to say, you're welcome. He's the ultimate giver. And even in the end, my obedient, generous giving leaves me more indebted to him, not less. This phrase is tragically misused and abused, but but it's a true statement. You will not outgive God. You won't. You will never put God in your debt. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. It won't happen. 
There will not be one person in the history of the world or in eternity to come that will ever justifiably utter the words, you're welcome, God. The more you sell, the more God will provide, the more you will be rewarded. God God will never owe you. Verse 13 is the, the foundation of that truth. Look at it. When the recipients of the Corinthians' generosity praise the Lord for this gift, they recognize it's out of his goodness. They will glorify God because of your submission, your obedient generosity that, that comes from what? Our confession of the gospel of Christ. How is this good news for me? I mean, if I end up owing God for it and God's getting all the glory, how is this good for me? How can I be generous? How is it that I can trust this principle of of sowing and, and reaping? How is it that I can have confidence that God will supply me with every good thing? And the answer is because he's already given us the greatest thing. That's our confidence. That's the the ground that we stand on. That's why Paul ends on the the high note of verse 15. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That's the gift to end all gifts. That's the, the generosity of all generosity. I can give with joyful generosity and confident faith because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 8.32, this is one of the most absolute comforting verses in all of Scripture. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? There's an argument here from the the greater to the lesser. Like, if he gave us his own son, what else would he withhold? If I were to give you my house, would you say, I don't know if he's going to leave the toilet paper behind. (laughs) I gave you the house! Why are you doubting my generosity and leaving behind the toilet paper? The greater thing secures the lesser. It gives confidence and hope. We have confidence that that God will be true to his promise. You want security that that that, that he's going to provide every good thing, that I can give this and I'm not going to be left high and dry. I'm not going to be left on on the losing end of this. You want rock solid evidence that God loves you? That he is absolutely, unconditionally committed to your greatest joy and good? Look at the cross. Look at what he's already done, giving us his son to die in our place. The holy, perfect, immaculate, eternal son of God bore my sin in his body on that tree taking the wrath of God, would have taken me an eternity in hell to absorb, to experience. He took it over the course of three hours so that I who was guilty could be treated as innocent. So that instead of eternity of wrath and suffering, which I absolutely deserve, I would receive an eternity of infinite joy and bliss. It's Ephesians 2, 7. Think about this. Let this blow your mind. So that in the coming ages, he, that's God, 
might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. How does God plan to display how good he is, the immeasurable riches of his grace? He intends to display the immeasurable riches of his grace in your joy for eternity. I'm okay with that bargain. I like the role I get to play in God displaying his glory in kindness toward me who does not deserve it. That's the foundational confidence we have of the goodness of God. Our submission to him, our our joyful, faithful, obedient generosity flows out from that confession as we wrap our minds around the gospel of Jesus Christ and all that that means, it ought to flow out then. I get it. Joyful generosity, trusting in the Lord, knowing there's a a reward to come that just, just blows all of this stuff out of the water. It's the inexpressible gift of God that motivates and undergirds our giving and and guarantees with with absolute certainty that that at the end of the most generous life, I could give myself dry. Maybe out of wealth, maybe out of poverty, we will find ourselves only as benefactors of God's goodness, His kindness. Blessed to the point of embarrassment by his kindness and his goodness toward us. We think about giving in this life. Consider the words of Jim Elliott, a missionary pilot who gave his life in the Amazon jungle, taking the gospel to the lost, famously said, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's not a foolish endeavor. Where's your focus? Where's your your heart wrapped up? You can tell where our treasure is. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. They, They go together. The things of this world... All the money, all the the toys and the comforts and the pleasures that we can pile up here. It's like storing up rack marks. It's chasing after and piling up a currency that is about to be evaporated. Now, God gives us good gifts. We can enjoy the blessings that he gives us here, but where's your heart? Where are you investing? What what is the substance of your your life? 1 John 2.16 For all that is in this world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This world is so fleeting, so short, so passing. The sound of the trumpet blast, every investment we have here is just going to vanish in an instant. And maybe that'll be today. I pray it is. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maybe that'll be 400 years from now. But either way, in, in, in comparison to eternity, it's a blink of an eye. It's a blink of an eye. We have this opportunity before us here and now through gospel-motivated, joyful generosity to to translate this, this quickly perishing seed of the world into a harvest of righteousness to the glory of God for an eternity to come. Now, you may have noticed all this talk. Do we even 
take an offering this morning? We didn't. So just hold off, guys. We'll do that later. I want us to think more carefully about giving and then practice giving together. I do want to clarify something. I don't want you to feel pressured and emotionally manipulated this morning to give more. I don't care how much you give. The Lord doesn't need your money. I'm not telling you to give more. I'm concerned that we give better. Maybe you're deciding in your heart right now, I need to grow in that. That's all right. But that's not my goal. My goal, well, it is my goal that we grow in it and we give better. I want you to give what you've decided in your heart to give. And I know many of you give regularly online. You have the automated thing set up. That's, that's great. Whether you give that way or by check or cash on Sunday morning, I hope you still pause. Consider in your heart before the Lord, am I generous? Do I really grasp this sowing and reaping principle? Is my, is my heart really set on the harvest to come? I'll tell you, it's one of the things that I wanted to see come back and we COVID and all the things that came and went. Um, can we get back to passing the offering? Because I hate sitting in my kitchen alone giving an e-transfer. And, and that's no judgment. Maybe you worship the Lord in that. I, that's fantastic. But I love to gather together and to give my offering to the Lord as we sing and worship together. Um, and, and so however you give, however that works in your heart, um, I want us to be thinking about that that it would be for joy and from faith and to the glory of God. So, um, Marissa, why don't you come and prepare to lead us in song. Uh, and as we sing, the ushers are going to come forward, but uh, let's pray together. Father, you know how short-sighted we are, how quickly our hearts get entangled in the, the things of this world and the short-sightedness of it all and the, the immediate things before us and how nervous we get, Lord, as fathers, we want to provide faithfully. But you're the provider. You've called us to generosity. God, I pray you would work that in our hearts. Lord, that we would so trust you, that we so understand your graciousness your generosity toward those who are generous, that we would give for the sake of, of joy, that we would do it cheerfully, excitedly. Lord, that we would do that standing in faith, trusting, knowing that you will give us every good thing, come what may, be it riches or poverty, freedom or enslavement, we trust in you, that you will provide for us sufficiently to accomplish the good works that you will set before us. God, let it flow out of our hope, our confidence in the gospel, in your uh, goodness toward us already on display that it might be for your glory and not ours. Because in the end, God, um, all we have to say is thank you. All we have is to sit back and look at the abundance of your grace and goodness toward us in Jesus Christ and eternity with you. So Lord, we praise you and we want to worship you uh, as we sing together and as we give together from, from glad and generous hearts. May your name uh, be magnified in it, we pray in Jesus' name.